Welcome to The Teacher's Story. I'm Jackie Scully. This is a podcast to elevate teacher voice. In this program, you will hear teachers sharing their journey into this profession and their ideas for education. This is about honest, vulnerable, inspiring storytelling. It's a time and a space for teachers to share their ideas for the future of education. Teachers are beautiful beings who give their heart and soul to their community. They're innovators. They're inspirational, not only to children, but to the people around them and they deserve to share their voice. So welcome to The Teacher's Story. Enjoy. Hi, welcome to The Teacher's Story. I'm Jackie Scully, and today we have Matthew Courtney with us. He has his doctorate in education, and he's an educator, a researcher, and policy maker. Uh, Dr. Courtney specializes in using data and research to support schools and teachers as they work to improve teaching and learning. And I think we're going to learn a lot about your methods and how you help to support teachers and education. So thank you for being on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me, Jackie. So my first question I always ask my guests is, what was the inspiration to get into education? Did this happen at a young age or later in life? Yeah, I actually kind of fell backwards into education. Um, When I went to college, my initial plan was to become a musicologist. And I thought I was going to go and study music and write books about composers and musical theories and that sort of thing. Um, But along the way, I earned a teaching certificate and I spent a lot of time in schools. I did a student teaching round like all teachers do. And I just really fell in love with the profession. I I didn't understand fully um, until I did that student teaching experience, the real power that educators have to make a difference in the lives of kids. kids, all the kids, but also an individual kid sitting right in front of you. And um, I remember very vividly one day driving home from my student teaching placement thinking, oh, this is it. This is where I need to spend the rest of my life. Oh, I love that. Yes. And I feel that sometimes when someone comes into it, maybe, you know, later in life or as a second profession, um, they really can see the power of it instead of like, maybe someone just starts with that. And so, You can share, if you like, any stories from your early experience, either teaching or maybe the work that you're doing now with uh, data and research. Yeah, I loved teaching and loved my time in the classroom. Um, But I think like a lot of teachers was really frustrated and maybe disillusioned with the professional development that I was receiving, with the kinds of work I was being asked to do. I taught elementary general music, kindergarten through fifth grade, um, and I just loved it. I love the way that music has the opportunity to help all children be successful. There's a space for success for every kid in a music classroom. Um, And I love the way that music can open the world um, for a young person and help them see different cultures and different ways of life and different ways of thinking about things. Music is the one universal thing um, in, in human civilization. Every culture, even those without math and those without written language, sat, still had some form of music. And so I love the power of that. But um, like a lot of teachers, I became really frustrated and felt like we were spending a lot of time um, spinning our wheels. The moment that really struck for me um, when I knew I needed to make a change, um, one year we, this was actually my maybe third year in the classroom, our school had spent thousands of dollars to bring a consultant in to teach us about writer's workshop. 
And we were going to do this whole school top to bottom. Everyone was doing writer's workshop. And so we read her book. She came and spent three days with us. Um, and it was a pretty good experience. And during those three days, we all got a one-on-one, -on -one, 30 minutes with her to say, here's what's happening in my classroom. What do you think? And she looked at me and said, well, I don't really know. I don't think that you can do writer's workshop in a music classroom. I don't know how to help you. And I was like, you have got to be kidding me. We have spent so many thousands of dollars and you're supposed to be teaching me how to do this mandated thing that I have to do. And you're telling me it can't be done. Mm. Did you tell my principal it can't be done? Oh no, he thinks it can be done. Okay, so where are we? Where do we go with this? So I left her her session, her our one-on-one, -on -one, very frustrated. And I said, okay, I... I'm going to do this. I'm going to do it right. I'm going to figure out how to do writer's workshop in the music classroom. And so I turned to the research and really started to understand what elements of writer's workshop would work for me. What is writer's workshop really? Why does writer's workshop work? And I used the research evidence to understand and build my own logic model. Um, that I could deploy in my classroom. And then I wrote an article for our statewide music educators magazine about, mm -hmm. hey, I did this thing and here's how it worked for me. And that was the first time where I really intentionally did an action research project in my classroom. I didn't know that's what I was doing at the time, uh, but that's the first time I really did it and then shared that out. And then I had music teachers calling me saying, hey, my principal wants us to do this too, and I can't figure it out. How do I do this? And I was like, ah, oh, there's power here. There's power to use the research to solve your own problems. Um, and then I, that's when I said, okay, I'm going to become Dr. Courtney. I'm going to figure out how to do this research meaningfully. I'm going to figure out how to help other teachers empower themselves to solve their own problems using the research literature. That is awesome. That's just so inspirational. And this story right now that you're sharing is just like what good teachers do. Yeah. You know, we're problem solvers. If we see that they're, you know, someone saying, no, I can't help you. We're like, that's not okay. Like that, <laughs> exactly. it's not good enough. Like you have to be here to, you know, teach me this program so I can help the children. And if you're not going to do it, I'm going to figure it out on my own. That's what good teachers do. I've seen it through my 17 years of teaching. Um, and I think that kind of story and part of teaching a lot of people outside the industry don't realize yeah. that we do often take things into our own hands and we create something new in the classroom. And I, I don't know if this falls under the whole, like no child left behind the mandate, but I remember teaching in Hawaii and we had the same kind of thing, like new professional development program, roll it out to the whole school. This is what we're all doing. And there would be some, you know, subject matter areas that are like, how does this work in my curriculum or in my space? And it just felt like everything was like one size fits all. And that's not really, I think that's often the frustration with professional development. It's like, yeah. we need to tailor this to each department. And even to each like developmental level and teacher. Um, and you don't get that. You get this box, you know, program and everyone has to just like follow it. So kudos to you for taking charge and diving in and then finding your passion in this next layer in education of really digging into research and data. So if there's anything else that maybe you want to share of like your early stages of then becoming Dr. Courtney and the work that you were doing in that industry. Yeah. So um, as I transitioned out of the classroom, um, I actually started my doctoral journey as a classroom teacher. Um, and then 
transitioned into the nonprofit sector where I was all focused on professional development and using research to guide professional development decisions. So that initial um, sort of spark that I had really had a big impact on the way that I approach this work even today, um, you know, a decade later. And, um, you know, one of the things you mentioned about having the same phenomena happen to you in Hawaii, um, in my work, I call that over the fence decision making, um, when leaders kind of look over the fence and say, hey, what are they doing over there? And then they just sort of adopt that um, without really a lot of thought or a lot of research or background. It worked for them, so it must work for us. But unfortunately, that's not how the world works. And so it's not a very effective way of making decisions. And so in that nonprofit space and throughout my doctoral program and my research, I really wanted to start to understand how can leaders make better decisions, better evidence-informed decisions. And thinking about, you know, when we look over the fence and say, what are they doing over there? We don't really know what they're doing. Sure, maybe they bought a product or they're implementing a system top to bottom or whatever, but we can't just copy and paste that because we have different kids, different teachers, different skills, different backgrounds. Um, and we, if we don't know what's happening over there, we can't replicate it. And that's why the research and the evidence is so important because we can see in the literature, how has this been implemented in school A, B, and C? Which school is most like ours? What can I expect realistically to come from this intervention, this program, this curriculum, this assessment, this whatever? Um, so it's really a way of making much more intentional decisions. Mm -hmm. And so I, I approach the work in two spaces. How do I help leaders make better, more intentional decisions? But at the same time, how do I help classroom teachers solve their own problems mm -hmm. without spending a lot of money, without spending hours on Pinterest, um, really collecting and analyzing the data and solving their own problems in real time. Yeah. And this tailor kind of tailor-made way of looking at like professional development and helping schools is, you know, you just look at our country. We have 50 states. Every state is completely different. The needs of those communities within each state is very different. So when you have, you know, a one size fits all, that's never going to work. And we also can't really necessarily, like you say, look over the fence to even other countries because mm -hmm. we're very different. You know, we're very diverse. We're, you know, a huge country. We have a lot of different needs than say other countries. Like I know people often will reference like Denmark and these like Scandinavian countries and their education program so great. And they're doing all these innovative, you know, wonderful things. And they are, and we definitely could use that as an exemplar, but they're nowhere near what we have as needs in our own country. So using the data to really make those informed decisions to help schools is so important. So um, another area you, you often talk about is teachers. So when you approach this type of work with using evidence-based research to teachers, how do they usually kind of react to it? Or is there kind of a relationship or time you have to build in with them to really like understand how to use it? Yeah, there's actually a whole body of literature about how teachers respond to this work. Um, and usually they respond with skepticism. I think well-earned skepticism. Um, they think this is, you know, here's another consultant, another outside guy coming in and telling me how to do things in my classroom. Um, but that's the really the beauty of this work is I'm not telling you how to do things in your classroom. I'm going to give you a handful of strategies, some data analysis skills that you may or may not already have, a new way of thinking, a framework around which to collect that data. And then you're going to solve your own problem. Um, I like to think about it really through an empowerment framework. Teachers are innovating all the time. 
all day, every day. They are the most innovative people on the planet. They're also scientists running tiny experiments all the time, all day, every day. So what I want to help teachers do is capture that data in a meaningful way, prove empirically that their interventions are working because they know, but then you say, well, how do you know it's working? And they can't always give you a real crisp answer. You just kind of, as a teacher, you just kind of know sometimes, right? Like it's this um, very intuitive feeling. Um, I, I certainly experienced that as a classroom teacher, but, but you need to be able to prove that it's working and then share your expertise out with the world. Tell other people what a great teacher you are. Tell them about the intervention that you did. Um, and I think back to that very first um, article that I published, I've published several research articles since then, but that very first one and the number of music teachers who called me and said, I needed this and no one could help me figure out how to do it. My principal made me do that too. And no one could help me. That is real power and power for teachers to really take hold and control and drive the profession. Um, so I do sometimes have to, um, get folks on board. We have to talk a little bit. I have to tell lots of stories. Um, sometimes people just have to watch, right? And they see, well, okay, that teacher did it first. It worked out okay mm -hmm. for them. I'll let Dr. Courtney in my classroom now. And we kind of have to unfold. Uh, it's all about trust and relationship building. Um, mm -hmm. But I take that role very, very seriously. That's a very important responsibility that I have um, in this is really building those meaningful relationships. Uh, that's why I have such a strong web presence. Um, I always mm -hmm. tell folks, if you attend one of my trainings, if you buy one of my books, if you do an online module with me, whatever it is, you are part of my network forever. And you can reach out to me at any time. And I'm going to help you get unstuck from whatever situation you found mm. yourself in. Um, and that's something I, I really mean. And teachers do take advantage of that. And it brings me so much joy to hear from someone who says, hey, I was in your professional development three years ago, and now I'm stuck. Can you help me? And to be able to unhelp, help unstick that teacher mm -hmm. um, is, I think, a really important responsibility. Yeah. And I love this part where you said that um, teachers are experimenters, because I definitely see it that way. And this kind of leads into my next part about the pandemic. So when like 2020, 2021 school year, and we were doing hybrid and learning all these different, you know, ways of teaching in hybrid world, I'm like, this is an experiment. This is something no one's ever done before. And we're just going to give it a go, you know, and like having data that we need to collect and see what's working and not working and almost like daily, weekly basis, you were trying new things. And that's a very empowering statement because teachers are scientists in that way. I mean, we are trying things out. Our classrooms are labs and we're collecting data and we're dissecting it and we're constantly trying to improve upon it and then share with each other and have this collaboration. And I like this part two that it's not just about, I'm going to teach you something. I'm going to show you the data and how to use it, but we're going to build a relationship because you have to have trust. Because a lot of times people are like, like you said, here's this other consultant coming in. They're just trying to sell me something. They're just trying to do like whatever the new technique is. And it doesn't like, you know, hit that teacher in like a personal way. And so yeah. building that relationship and having trust is so key. And I could I could already sense that from you just like in our first conversation that we had before um, this interview. And so um, moving into the pandemic, of course, there's lots, I'm sure there's lots <laughs> of problems and solutions that needed to come out of that. And so anything that you want to share in like a specific way that maybe you help uh, teachers use data during this time of um, teaching in the pandemic? 
Yeah, sure. Uh, before I do that, let's take a step back and think about the pandemic broadly for a second. Um, and, and you touched on this, that sort of rapid fire change that we all experienced um, and really a Herculean effort by teachers in the classroom to survive that change and, and make that change. But one of the things about the pandemic that I think is really important, a good opportunity for us to learn as educators, is the, the observations we got to make from the medical field during this period, because the medical field is an evidence-based profession. Every doctor is also a scientist. And if your doctor sees that you have some strange um, pre presentation of an illness and they're going to treat it with some unique technique, they then have a formal professional responsibility. It's actually in their code of ethics um, that they then must write a paper and share that with the rest of the medical community. Mm. Um, and a lot of us have benefited from that. Um, I personally have benefited from um, a, a change in diagnosis later in life of a chronic illness where a new illness, a new diagnosis was created. And my doctor said, I think this is actually what you have. And it changed my life in a great mm. way. We got to see that happen, that sort of sloppy, ongoing process in real time, right? Every night we turn on the news and, well, this doctor in China says this, and this doctor mm -hmm. in the UK says this, and now they're saying this over here, and in Mexico we're seeing this. Mm -hmm. And and that really is evidence-based practitioners working to solve problems in real time. Mm -hmm. It's sloppy, it's frustrating, it's a little frantic, um, but it's a model that I would love to see in our profession, where teachers are working together in that sort of frantic pace to say, this isn't working, we have to fix it, let's all come together and fix it right now. You know, what if we had an operation warp speed dedicated towards our English learners population and the challenges mm. that they face every day, an operation warp speed dedicated to our special education students, our students who have extra needs for our gifted students, and how can we push them even farther, and groups of teachers really coming together and doing that. For me, it showed this just great opportunity that we have as a field of practitioners to become practitioner researchers and really to make education an evidence-informed and evidence-based field. Um, so for me, it, of course, the pandemic was awful and challenging, but also full of opportunity mm -hmm. and, and insight if we can open our eyes and pay attention and kind of be willing to see that. I was really blessed during the pandemic to be in a role of support um, where I was able to um, help schools and districts and leaders and teachers all across uh, my state and in some other states as well to help them really think about what do we do and how do we do this. So as a classroom teacher, you don't have time to say, oh, I got to figure out what are the best practices for um teaching online and I have a weekend to read all the research literature and figure it out, yeah. right? But I, as a researcher, have the time to say, okay, I'm going to figure this out. I'm going to write some guidance and I'm going to send that out so that you can read my two or three page quick summary. Now, that's not necessarily the best practice long-term, but in that emergency situation, that was really important. And so I spent a lot of time um, digging into literature, helping to kind of create frameworks and structures 
for educators and leaders as they sought to kind of rethink education on the fly. Um, I also got to work with them a lot on their money. There were billions of dollars pumped into education and people were saying, well, what do we do with this? Well, let's figure mm -hmm. out what, what do we do with this? How do we use this money in a smart and effective way? Um, so that to me was, was really powerful. Um, I was putting in 80 hours a week, just like every classroom mm -hmm. teacher was. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to see whatever I could do to make their lives a little easier um, and help them work smarter, not harder during an impossible time in all of our lives. Yes. And that was so needed. I wish we had someone like you at the time <laughs> when we were, because I remember that weekend we went into lockdown. Um, it was literally like the weekend teachers were getting calls from like the ed tech, you know, instructor and figuring out how to put like videos together yeah. um, on Loom and then share that because then Monday came and it was full like professional development, but we were doing it for each other. We didn't have yeah. anyone like come in yeah. until the summer when we were able to like sign up for different professional development. But no one really taught us also, or like had the professional development for hybrid. Like we did a lot with the virtual mm -hmm. and felt really strong in that. And actually by the end of the spring, like towards the end of the school year of 2020, we all felt, I mean, everyone had the Zoom exhaustion, but we all felt like, pretty good about what we were doing because we were yeah. lucky enough to be virtual like right from the get-go and then when hybrid came around in the fall it was like um how do we do this and that whole year felt like none of this is working like and we kept trying different things and doing that but it would have been wonderful to have someone like you you know um accessible and being able to really work with us in this triage kind of setting because it, it was like we felt like very much that it was just thinking on your feet constantly and constantly troubleshooting. Um, and yeah, I think by the end of hybrid, we were all just like, that just did not work at all. I don't know how you make that work. You need like, you need to clone yourself. It's just, it's so yeah. hard to meet the needs of all the students. And it was constantly changing as far as like how many kids you had in the classroom, how many were at home. There was one point you'd have two in the classroom and like 18 on zoom and you're like how, yeah. this doesn't really make sense how we're doing this mm -hmm. so um i think especially during this time your work and your support was very very important um was there any feedback that you got from schools or teachers about the work of your support in that time you know it was all so frantic um that it was like here's what you asked for last time what do you need now and so it was just like this constant back and forth. Um, I don't think I've ever written as much in my entire life as I did during especially that first year of the pandemic, where it really was just back and forth. And um, a lot of public health. Um, mm -hmm. I feel like I should get an honorary master's degree <laughs> in public health, because I just learned so much yeah. about, you know, viral load and testing mm -hmm. and you know, HVAC systems, goodness gracious, I never thought I would know so much about mm -hmm. HVAC systems. Mm -hmm. um, but that was the information that people needed. Um, so it was really uh, very much a partnership with the educators in my life and in my sort of realm where um, it was just what do you need now? What do you need now? And trying to help them solve those problems in real time. I think that that frantic feeling um, that was, that was challenging for all of us at every level of the system. But I think, you know, we dial that from a 10 back to a seven, and that's kind of where I would like to see us being mm -hmm. in the future, right? Mm -hmm. Still that collaborative nature, that teachers teaching each other. Um, mm -hmm. part of my dissertation research looked at who teachers 
trust the most. And this idea of sort of professional development being a self-fulfilling prophecy. So you kind of decide, oh, I'm not going to like that before I even go in based on who the presenter is, right? That's a, I think a common sensation that we all have. And what my research showed was that teachers trust other teachers Mm -hmm. before anyone else. They will trust another teacher from another state before they'll trust a PD from their own principal or their own central office. Then they trust those administrators before they trust an outside consultant. So thinking about how do we empower teachers to really innovate, to collect that data, to prove their innovations work, and then share that just like you did in that kind of frantic mm-hmm. moment. Mm-hmm. But you know, we can bring the, the franticness down, <laughs> right? Yeah. We can take a little more time. We can be a little more intentional now, um, but keeping that momentum going where we're mm-hmm. helping each other and we're solving our problems in real time. Um, that's where I would like to see us get. And that's what my work really focuses on. Yeah, I think the pandemic is a time where there will be that shift because I think for a long time, education is kind of moving at like a snail pace. Yeah. <laughs> it's out of all the other industries, it's it's kind of behind. Um you do have progressive schools, you do have individual progressive teachers, um you know, charter schools or private schools maybe have a little bit more independence and freedom to experiment and try new programs. You have, you know, nature education based schools, exploratory learning, all of that. But across the board in public education, it's still pretty traditional. Mm -hmm. And one thing um, that I really like to promote on this show and kind of leads into our last part about education reform is kind of what can we take from this time of the pandemic and then bring into the future and really start to explore how we can change schools, you know, and move it really into the 21st century instead of just Mm -hmm. saying, yeah, we're doing 21st century learning. I'm like... I think we're saying that with the tech <laughs> tools, but it's still a 20th century classroom. Like yeah, if you think yeah. about the model of the classes have not changed that much. Yeah. And I often talk about schedules need to be changed. The way, especially at the high school level, choice in classes or subject matter that you know students are interested in. Um, the kind of work that you would like to see in schools, I think a lot of that um, can happen if something with the schedule changes, because right now the schedules are like eight, sometimes some schools are 7.30 so early. So like three, 3.30, just like, just go straight through, you know? And there isn't real space for students and also teachers to do this kind of like really engaging work with like collaborating, collecting data, dissecting it. Mm-hmm. So is there anything um, that you would like to share that you would like to see in the education space moving forward? Yeah, I mean, I think you're spot on about creating time and space. That's why I had to leave the classroom. I couldn't have done this work and maintained a classroom presence. And that's something that is painful to me um, because I will always have those kiddos who I taught in my heart. Um, and it's it's painful to me that I can't do this work and work with those, those youth, but I just can't because the mm-hmm. system doesn't allow for that. I mean, when I was teaching, I was in my classroom at 530 in the morning every day mm-hmm. um, and was often in that those four walls for 12 or more hours before mm-hmm. I could get my day done and get out. And so to try to pursue a doctoral degree, to try to complete a research project in those confines is just a really heavy weight. So I think, um, you know, creating space and prioritizing this work is something that we can all do a better job of. I would love to see our licensing boards and our professional Mm -hmm. associations adopt um, an 
an eth formal ethical responsibility to do this work, like we see in the medical profession, for example, where, you know, if you create something cool, it is the expectation, mm -hmm. not, not, it, it's the norm. It's not something abnormal or unique to you, but we are all creating and sharing. Um, and we've got systems to do that. You know, that's, there aren't really good systems to share that practitioner driven research. Um, a lot of it can't be published in our formal sort of public academic publishing industry because it's not rigorous enough. It's mm -hmm. not supposed to be that rigorous, right? It's that practitioner in the moment. And that has value. Um, that the more formal longitudinal work, all of that has value too, but they both have value. And in my opinion are of equal value, because if we don't have this practitioner research, then what do the longitudinal researchers have to go off of, right? Somebody has to light the spark so that somebody outside of the classroom can study it long-term. Mm -hmm. And so we need sort of that, that pipeline in that system. Um, I would also love to see in addition to time, um, training opportunities and resources. I think that um, one of the biggest barriers when I work with classroom teachers is that they don't have access to research studies. They can't put their hands on them easily. Mm. Um, there's a handful of good resources out there. Um, the ERIC database, which is funded by the U.S. Department of Education, is a great mm -hmm. place to start, but it's not complete and comprehensive. And so if you don't have access to the research, how can you begin to use it? it, it I mean, that's sort of the barrier number one, right? Mm -hmm. um, so that would be my message to leaders all over the country is how can you create space? How can you provide resources? Time is a resource, space is a resource, but also database access, access to real researchers out in the field who are working all the time um, in, in the research space. How can you bring those in and build research practice partnerships with them? Um, really prioritizing this work in a new way. I think that's going to be the key to reshaping our education system after the pandemic. Yeah. And I think if we invest in teachers' time and invest in, if they're giving, say, time in the summer, you know, if you're like, we really can hit the ground running if we maybe start a little bit earlier and you pay them for that time and then you yeah. really can dig into this work and then you give them the resources to this research. Like, let's look at some of the new research that's coming out of the pandemic, right? Let's like dissect it and grapple with it and see like what we can bring to our school. But you need like time with that. Like yeah. I know when we start school, we have three, you know, opening meeting days and they are meetings, 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 meetings with a little bit of professional development. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I, I don't know if every teacher would agree with this, but I do not need a three month summer vacation. But if I'm going to use my time say in August to do this kind of critical work, you pay your teachers, right? You pay yeah. them their stipends to come in. Um, and you're, you're, you're committing to this work. So I think even maybe like changing the schedule of the year and what that looks like. We all need breaks, but if we really want to dig into this and have this like code of ethics of like, do this work and share it, then maybe you just start the school year with the teachers a little earlier and you're paying them for that time. And then when school year starts, you're just going to have to, you know, fill in a little bit of space time for them to meet and collaborate. I totally believe in, in teacher sharing. And I think one thing it's happening more, but you still have a lot of like old school educators that what they create is theirs and they're very proud of it. And that's awesome, but they just keep it to themselves. And it could be so beautiful to share that in your community. So I think there should be an expectation that you are in a collaborative community. You have a classroom 
and that's like your lab, but you are part of a community where you are sharing this work. Um, and that's how we all become stronger as educators. And ultimately we're, we're doing more for each of our students in, in the school system. So I, I think that would be wonderful. Um, you know, maybe structurally those things will change down, down the road. I think the big thing right now is so many teachers are transitioning out of the classroom that there's like this need of just getting teachers back into yeah. the schools. Yeah. So I think the the first major solution is going to be pay your teachers, right? Yeah. Like yeah. pay them well. And if you're going to pay them well, then you can have these expectations. But if you're going to keep salary kind of stagnant, then it's going to be really hard to have these expectations. So you got to just uh, fund the teachers, fund the education programs, and then you can kind of raise that bar. Because I do think we need to raise the bar in our school system. Yeah, I agree with you. And I mean, we are losing educators to private industry and it's not because they hate teaching and it's not because they're yeah. tired of kids. It's because they can't sustain their life. Um, we need to elevate the quality of life for teachers. And um, one way that I help do that in my own sphere uh, as a consultant, I will not do after school PD. I will not do unfunded um, professional development. If, if you are requiring your teachers to be there, then you must create space. You must provide compensation for that time, um, or I will not work with you. Um, because if this work is really important to you, mm -hmm. then you need to put your money where your mouth is. You need yeah. to really show that. Um, so that's a, a rule that I have as a consultant that I wish more consultants would really yeah. take on um, because it, it really um, sends a message to teachers and to the field that you are important and this work mm -hmm. is important and we want to keep you here. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I think it's a real crisis point that we're in right now in education where quality of life is just not what it used to be. And I am sympathetic and understand those teachers who had to leave. I had to yeah. leave. Um, and it hurts my heart, like I said, every day um, that I'm not currently in the classroom, but I just physically can't do that anymore um, mm -hmm. and maintain the quality of life and do the work uh, that I think is important. So, yeah, I think you're spot on there. Thank you for doing that as part of your work. And hopefully this message not only is going out to teachers, but other educational consultants, because I think that's crucial is people need to feel like they're they're being they're have an investment right mm -hmm. people are investing in them anybody who wants to be a part of a, a company wants to feel like that company is investing in them yeah. you do that then that person's going to feel valued and then they're going to you know meet you at that that point of saying okay let's go let's raise the bar let's have higher expectations so what you're doing is wonderful and i, I would love to just clone you and have more of you <laughs> working in schools that would be wonderful so thank you so much, uh, Matt, for meeting uh, with me today for this wonderful conversation and the work you're doing. Um, how can our listeners find you? I want to share any information about your websites or where you're really active? And then I will put that in the show notes as well. Yeah. Um, so to all your listeners, thanks for tuning in today. And um, just like anyone else who would engage with me, I consider all of you to be part of my network now. Um, so please follow me on social media. Um, I'm available on all platforms and we'll put all that in the show notes. You can also find me on my website, which is www.matthewbcourtney.com. Um, there I have a blog and I have dozens of free tools and resources. Um, and reach out to me if I can ever help you. Like I said, you're part of my network now. I'm I want you to be successful. I want to help you um, solve your own problems in real time. So 
get in touch and stay in touch. Thank you so much. And I really believe that you have this genuine um, desire to really help teachers. So thank you for the work that you're doing. And thank you for being on the show. Thank you for having me, Jackie. Bye. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to The Teacher's Story. If you like this story, please subscribe and leave a review. You can also follow this podcast on YouTube and subscribe and leave a comment. All reviews help this podcast keep going and elevating teacher voices.